Amen. Hey, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you are here. Um, I love the first Sunday of the month because we're going to receive communion together and uh, we're going to do that in just a minute. But, but today we're kicking off. This is great. This reminds me of April 2005. I like this. Hey, uh, if, uh, if you're here for the first time, my name is Brad and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint. And just to kind of get this out, just to paint the elephant in the room, um, I'm wearing pink for my little daughter because she turned four a couple weeks ago on Valentine's Day, which is her birthday, but we were in Disney World, and then last week she was sick, so um, if you see her, we're wearing pink today in honor of my little girl, Arabella Evangelista. Um, If you got a Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and here's what we're doing today. We are kicking off a series on the church, and I am really excited about this. It's going to take us about four or five weeks through March, and um, we are going to talk about the the structure of the church, the purpose of the church. Today we're going to try and define what is a church, and uh, we're going to look at how churches are led, and so I'm really, really excited about that. But before we do that, let me mention a couple of exciting things uh, for those of us that are here. Heath and Christy Edwards, where are they? are in the back. We found out a few weeks ago that Heath and Christy Edwards are expecting their second child, so yeah, give it up for Heath and Christy. And um, and we may have to repeat these announcements next week. I think, in fact, we will. But also, um, one of the guys up in the band, um, Travis Sanders, and his beautiful bride, Holly, now Sanders, were married last Saturday, and they've been away this week on their honeymoon, and they are back. And so if you sort of see this glow coming from those two folks, raise your hands, Travis and Holly. Congratulations. They just got married. Yeah. Great to have you guys back. Um, they were married last last week, and so um, we're going to be talking about the church today. Here's our big idea. I just want to answer one question: What is the church? And to do that, we're going to be working our way through some scriptures, and we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to cover a lot of scripture today, and then we're going to receive communion together. So we got a lot of work to do. Let's get started. Ephesians chapter one and verse two. If you um, if you ask the question, "What is the church?" It seems on the surface kind of like a simple question, but it's really much more complex really when you get down into it. And it was hit home for me a couple weeks ago. Uh, Reynolds and I and Will Hawk were eating lunch at the Mexican food restaurant called Vallarta. It's right in front of the point right there on Veterans Parkway. And something happened to me. It was it was a bit of an epiphany because uh, we were sitting there at the table and um, I grew up um, in a place uh, called northern Mexico, which is also known as Southern California. And so my hometown is is all Mexican and I grew up with Mexican food. In fact, I had kind of a Hispanic sounding sounding last name. I thought I was Mexican until I was about the age of 12. And um, and but. Uh, we were sitting there ordering, and uh, and and I and Reynolds and Hawk asked me both. I said, "Hey," they said, "What's good here?" And I said, "Oh, chimichangas are good here." And to my great shock, they said, "Well, what's a chimichanga?" And I said, "Seriously, you don't know what a chimichanga is?" And so then I launched into an explanation of what a chimichanga is. But midway through, it got harder than I thought it was going to be because. Because chimichangas are hard to define compared to some other things that are very common Mexican dishes. I said, well, what it is is it's a tortilla and it's got stuff in it, usually chicken or carne or beef, or you can put other things in there too, depending on kind of where you are in Mexico. But, but anyway, you kind of roll it up and Hawk goes, well, what's the difference between that and a burrito? I'm like, well, that, that's a good point. See, actually, see that they make the tortillas a little different on a chimichangas. It's deep fried, actually. And so, so the tortilla has kind of a different texture. But yeah, it's kind of like a burrito. And then, but then I started thinking, that's kind of like a, kind of like a flauta, which is also kind of a roll deal with a tortilla, with a tortilla. But, and a flauta is also, depending on the type of tortilla you use, a taquito, which is also a rolled thing with a tortilla with some meat or beans in it, which is also kind of like an enchilada, which is a tortilla with some stuff in it, but you bake it, you don't fry it, which is also kind of like a chalupa or a tostada, which is a tortilla that can be flat or folded that's got meat in it. So, I mean, I'm thinking, how can you not know what a chimichanga is? But in reality, a chimichanga is very similar to a burrito, which is very similar to a flauta, which is very similar to a taquito, which is very similar to an enchilada, which is kind of similar to a chalupa. And so when you get right into it, defining a chimichanga is a little bit harder than meets the eye. Likewise, um, defining a church is 
a little bit harder than meets the eye. So let's go in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to fly through uh, the first and second chapter, not read all the verses, and then we're going to ask some questions and and, uh, hopefully answer them well, and then receive communion together. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people called the Ephesians, appropriately named because they lived in a place called Ephesus, and they were a small church that he helped to pioneer, most likely, uh, through his missionary work in the gospel and the, the empire of Rome. And now he's writing a letter back to them, probably a small group of people huddled in a house, probably somewhere. And he writes some pretty profound things. And let's pick up in um, verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3. He says, and we're going to kind of fly through this. There's so much in these two chapters, but we're just going to use it as sort of a, a flyover to give you a a feel for what Paul has in mind here as he's describing this beautiful thing called the church. He starts with the individual, and he says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's an amazing verse. Don't have time to unpack it. It has not much to do with what we're talking about today, but but that's an underliner right there. Verse 4, Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved so okay so there verse 6 is pretty important He's saying that he, he made you a Christian for his glory so that his glorious grace could be praised. Okay, let's go down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me just give a parenthesis. This is not um, uh, a continuation of what we talked about last week, but I think that's a very comforting verse in these very uncertain times that he says that, He works all things according to the counsel of his will, even markets, even politicians. Okay, I don't have time to unpack that again. Um, I could get going on that and completely miss this sermon today. But that's that's comforting, is it not? That either all things means all things or it means nothing at all. So certainly the presidency and the financial market and the Fed and all that is, is part of that. Okay, anyway. Don't get me started on that. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's kind of there's this theme going on is that God is saving us for some big purpose bigger than just our individual salvation and it's for his glory. Okay, let's keep going. Let's let's fast forward to the end of chapter 1 and verse 22. And this is a stunning scripture verse here. It says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet that means that god the father and if we were to read it all through you'd get the gist here god the father put all things under god the son's feet and gave him meaning jesus as head over all things to the church there's our word verse 23 which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so there's a there's an incredibly important sentence there it says that god has given all of this that he's done in salvation in fact everything in the world that doesn't mean that everybody's part of the church but everything is going to be reconciled to him in some day whether it be in heaven or in judgment to hell he is reconciling all things to himself and he is he's putting everything under the feet of christ he's making the head of this thing called the body of christ which is the church and oh by the way it's in this very thing that he dwells with all his fullness i mean that's That's stunning. That's spectacular. And then the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. We won't read them all. We spent a lot of time on these scriptures here at Crosspoint. But let me just go to verse 8, where he again zeroes in on how we as individuals become Christians. And he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so now what he's saying is that God has done this miraculous work in you as an individual, and then he transitions, and he now he... He now takes it from the individual to this corporate thing that God is doing, and that's what he transitions in verse 11. And he says, therefore... <laughs> For all you kids who grew up in the 70s, there it is. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Therefore, 
Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and we can kind of read that as meaning you people who previously did not know Christ, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, called, called those who did not believe in God by those who did know God, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That means that there was a point, if you are a Christian where you were not a Christian, and he's saying, so remember that, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's hard for us. Can we just admit that that's hard for us as as American Christians, some of us who've grown up in the church, to realize that there was a time, even if we were a very little child, that we were without hope. I mean, you've got to realize that God, even if you were a good little kid that grew up in Columbus, Georgia, that has always been getting a bulletin from some church. I mean, there was a time when, whether you kind of realize it or not, when you passed from death into life, and before that you had no hope, but now with God you have hope. And then in verse 13 he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in other words, between the Jew and the Gentile, and between God and man, he has done this great work and reconciled all people to himself, whether or not they believe in him or not. Those that believe in him, he's reconciled them to heaven. Those that don't, eventually he will judge them justly and, and, and bring about his reconciliation in that way. And so he's brought peace, he's brought righteousness, and he's brought judgment By his work on the cross. And he says that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, meaning Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. And then these last few verses and we'll be done. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure he's talking about the church now being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Okay, so let's step back now and use this verse as a launching point. We can say a couple things, two or three things. Number one, I think even just by reading that quickly, we need to get the gist that there's something going on here in salvation that's far, far bigger than just our individual salvation. I mean, God is doing something more profound than just securing our individual destinies in the cross. That's a beautiful and huge part of it. But he is, he is on a much grander macro scale. He is, he is gathering together a group of people from every tribe and every nation, Jew and Gentile, to be a corporate body for his glory. I mean, that is absolutely profound. So the first thing is, is there's something much bigger going on here than just my individual salvation. And secondly, God has formed a people, and he calls it the church, and he says that I'm going to live in that church. And so um, I think we can just launch into the questions that we're going to ask now with this, with this, with this thought that, that the church is an incredibly important entity. The church is an incredibly important entity. Okay, so um, what is the church? What is the church? Because we could say, well, the church is the the people here who are the um, snowy day folks, and we are here, so the church is a body, but then you know we could say, well, it, it, it maybe it's the people that you know. We look in the Bible, and there's a whole bunch of different representations of the church. It's kind of like trying to define a chimichanga. I mean, what is a chimichanga, and what is the church? Because there's these scriptures, like at the end of Romans in chapter 16. Don't flip there, but Paul is writing, and he says, "Greet the church that meets in your house." And so there's some people there that are called the church that meet in that house. And then uh, just a couple pages later in 1 Corinthians, he says to the church that is in 
Corinth, which is a city. And so the churches will it's in a south house. But no, actually, in this particular situation, it's in a city. And then there's a couple other places all throughout the book of Acts where he talks about the church in that region. So so well, maybe the church isn't just in a house or maybe it's not just in a city, but it's also in a region. But then in Ephesians chapter five, the the scripture says that Jesus gave himself up for the church, meaning all of us. So the church is kind of hard to define. But what we can say is that there's two different levels to the church. There is this visible church. It's a group of people that are in here right now. And then there's this invisible church, which is all believers, all time, from from the beginning and to the end. And that is the invisible church of God. Now, within the visible church of God, there's people that are worshiping today. And not all of them are necessarily part of the real church because they're not necessarily Christians. And so we kind of have this liquid definition of the church. What exactly is the church? And here's a, here's a good definition. Let me put it up on the screen for you. It's, it's, um, I don't have it on your notes, but uh, it's a, it's, I kind of adapted it from a book and a few other um, textbooks that I have. And this is, this is a good definition of the church. Throw it up there on the screen if you would. It says that the local church, you guys, no, the next, it's the definition of the church. Um, I think you got it up there, hopefully. There you go. What is the church? The local church is a community of regenerated believers. In other words, people who actually have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just people that show up. People that have actually had a born-again experience with Jesus. Who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to Scripture. They organize under qualified leadership. Gather regularly for preaching and, and worship. Observe the biblical ordinances of water baptism and communion. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Are unified by the Spirit and are disciplined for holiness and scatter to fulfill the great commandment and great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. I'm going to email this out later on this afternoon, but that is a great definition of the church. It is a group of people, not that just meet in a building. It's not bricks and mortar. It's not people that have necessarily had their name on a roll for all of their life, but it is a group of people, whether or not they ever actually gather um, in, in an official sense like we do, but it's a group of people who have had a born again experience. They have confessed and their sins and repented and trusted in what Christ did and now become part of this for all time, global, universal thing called the church. And then once they do that, generally they begin to gather with other Christians, sometimes in a house, sometimes in a building like we're doing, sometimes in very large settings, sometimes in different ways, sometimes with music, sometimes without music, sometimes more formally, sometimes very informally. But they gather together regularly to do a couple things. Number one, worship God with their lives, to sing together, to encourage one another, to listen to the Bible, to listen to teaching out of God's word. And then they scatter throughout the week to do life together, encourage one another, nurture one another, teach one another, and also to spread the gospel and good news of Christ by loving the world, and then they reconstitute and continue to do this on a regular pattern. And that is what this definition is capturing. So we can look at um, two biblical and historical essentials of what the church actually is. And that's what we were at just a second, uh, just a moment ago. Number one, um, these are generally two things that you will find in every church um, from the beginning of Acts until now. And these are things that are backed up in the scriptures, and I think that um, history proves out that there are two things that, that prove a church to be a, a church. The first is, is the right preaching of the gospel, the word of God. Anytime you have a group of people together, if they're going to be a church, there has to be some teaching and some preaching out of the word of God. And it has to be centered on the scriptures. It can't just be a bunch of good thoughts. Let me kind of give you an example. There's... There's um, a lot of churches that would call themselves churches that um, would would uh, have kind of moved towards sort of a pop psychology or a self-help sort of, of mentality. And, and in reality, they're really not preaching the scriptures. Let me give you an example. Um, there is, uh, let's just say we wanted to do a series on marriage. And the point was, hey, everybody in here that's a man that's married needs to be a better husband. 
And so, guys, you, you, need to, you need to be a better husband. And the things that you need to do to be a better husband is you need to take out the trash. Um, you need to, yes, you need to, you need to prefer your wife. Um, you need to get up early in the morning and you need to serve her. Occasionally, you need to take her out on a date. You need to romance her. Remember how when you treated her, when you were trying to get her to notice you? Well, you need to continue to treat her like that. And so you need to take the initiative and you need to not let romance die out. And you need to be romantic. And you, <laughs> I'm feeling a little convicted. But these are things that... That you should do, right? You should do that. And, 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 and to be a better husband, you need to take the lead in um, the raising of your children and the discipline issues. You need to let that not all fall on your wife's shoulders. And so you guys need to do that, okay? And here's a list of the things that you need to do. And um, go about trying to do them better, okay? Now, be a better husband. Now, is that, is that good stuff? It's not just good stuff. It's great stuff, man. Every one of you... Sorry, suckers should be doing it, to include myself. But is that preaching from God's word? No. It's good stuff, and it's very, very helpful, but it's not necessarily the word of God unless it is tied to the gospel. Because, see, here's, here's the difference between what that looks like, which is just helpful stuff, and the gospel from which all of the other helpful stuff should flow. There should be a link between those two. Now, that can be in a message, and that can be very much a part of what we talk about, but it's got to be tied to the Word of God and the gospel, which tells us the good news over and over and over again. So it's like this. It's like, men, you, you first must realize that there is no hope for us apart from Christ, that we are... We are sinners that have no help and so no hope apart from him. And so you must realize that even if you've been a Christian for 20 years or if you're just becoming a Christian, that you, uh, your natural nature is sin and it's to want your own way and to be selfish. And so apart from being reconciled in your sin and trusting in Christ, you cannot be the husband that you are supposed to be. And once you become a Christian, then something beautiful, this transaction happens on the cross. And Jesus not only takes your sin and your debt, but he also gives to you his righteousness. Because Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him, God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you can be this type of husband, not by gritting your teeth and just... Uh, just fostering and just ginning up enough effort but you can be this type of man because the scriptures move you towards this and they call you and they let you know that christ has given you his strength and his spirit that lives in you and through that now you can take the initiative and you can imitate christ and you can imitate other men around you and you can be like that and you can do this because of the gospel and it is a process and you've got to live with other men who are urging you on in this way so that's how you do it do you see the difference difference between those two that is preaching the gospel and then some truth of life flowing out of it rather than just saying these are the things that you need to do and now go do them and okay now that, that, that be a better husband there, there's a vast difference between those two things and by the way you can take everything in life Everything in life, whether it is balancing your checkbook or being a better spouse or dealing with anger or dealing with temptation, everything, you can take it. In fact, you must tie it to the gospel. But when you separate it and you just let it be sort of some self-help thing for you have three steps to maintain life better, it moves from gospel, word of God preaching to pop psychology self-help. Now, the roots of the truth that are helpful in there may be very powerful, but unless they are tied to the gospel, they are temporary, and it is not tethered to the thing that calls out your soul to connect with your Creator. That's the difference between gospel, Word of God preaching, and self-help. And there is a great divide between churches that do this and see everything tethered to the cross and to the Word, and churches that do this because they want to be helpful. There is a great divide. And you've got to know that churches, in order to be biblical churches, must tie everything to the good news. That's why it's not the gospel for salvation, and now let's move on to self-help. Everything tethers, everything grows out of the gospel. You can do everything because of the gospel. You can be all these things because of the gospel. And so that's why we must preach. 
and preach and preach the gospel and the word of God over and over and over again. And every doctrine, every point from the scriptures flows out of the good news of the work of Christ on the cross. Do you see that? So that's the first thing, is that historically a biblical church is where the word of God and the gospel, I'm using those terms interchangeably in the sense, are rightly preached. Secondly, there are two ordinances, some people call them sacraments, that Jesus commanded the church to do when they gather on a regular basis, that if for a church to be a biblical New Testament church, they need these two elements in them. And they are, they are water baptism, which we do on a relatively regular basis here. Someday, hopefully, we'll be able to have a tank of water up here every Sunday. So if somebody becomes a Christian and they want to do it, then let's do it. But we're going to have a water baptism here in a few weeks once it gets a little warmer in the spring. But the two ordinances are water baptism and receiving regular communion together. And both of these ordinances or both of these traditions, both of these remembrances are things that Jesus tells us to do to remind us of the gospel. So he says, he says in Matthew chapter 28, he tells them to go and teach people about the kingdom, make disciples and baptize them, water baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. So water baptism signifies the entrance into the gospel and salvation and communion signifies the continuation of our lives with Christ. And we're going to do that here today in just a moment. So we have two things that make up a biblical church, right preaching of the gospel, tying everything to that and the carrying out of the ordinances of water baptism and the church. And that's what that's what a, uh, water baptism and communion. That's what a church is. But let's look at a couple things now that the church does there's three things here biblical and historical purpose historical purposes and i have them there on your sheets number one is that a church gathers to worship god we gather together remember what we read in ephesians 1 about everything's about god's glory and about his his fame and his renown we gather to worship god not just in song but in our fellowship and in our lives we come together to celebrate god first peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that we are a royal a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we come together to, in a tangible way, express that God is on the throne and that he is the creator of all things. So we gather together to worship. That's, one, that's the reason we were made. We come also to love and nurture one another. Let me read you a scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. A beautiful scripture about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, it says, For just as the body, meaning the church, is one and has many members, or in this case the physical body, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so we, we are all like connected. And you, look, this is, this, is, this is really, really important. You cannot live a healthy vibrant spiritual life without being vitally and continually connected to a local body and a local expression of the church. That would be like expecting a finger to be healthy with it being 
severed from the hand. How can that receive blood flow? It can't. So one of the purposes of the church is to love and nurture one another. Historical and biblical purpose number one is to worship God. Secondly is to be connected to one another, to love one another, to nurture one another, to let the blood flow through one another so that we are healthy. And third and finally is to spread the gospel. I referred to this verse just a second ago, but um, this is our biblical mandate. Matthew chapter 28 um, verse 17, let's start there. And uh, if you don't got a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. But I love this verse because it encourages me when I doubt. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. Um, really what I want to read is 18, 19, and 20. But let's back up because I think some of us will be encouraged by verse 17. Matthew 28, 17. And it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now this is post-resurrection. Jesus has died on a cross, been buried, been in the grave for three days, rose again, and is probably, if we take all of the Gospels together and kind of compile them, it's during that same period of time where he's, he's finally addressing his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And so, just, just kind of get this, let me set the stage here. Jesus has, has, has done all sorts of miracles, fed thousands of people, walked on water, raised people from the dead, died himself, been resurrected from the dead, is now like probably levitating off the ground. And it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Seriously? Like, like how does that work out? Like, Jesus is floating, and he's done all these things. Like, I don't know, man. I mean, look at this cousin Jimmy. He could do this levitation trick with his skateboard. I mean, I don't know. It, was just, it just blows me away. So, if you struggle sometimes... Um, you know, you're not as messed up as you might think you are. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Here's the imperative. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the three things that a church does is it worships God, it loves and cares for one another, and it spreads the good news of the gospel. Okay, three implications, and then we're going to gather around the uh, Lord's table together and receive communion. And, um, and I've thought long and hard about these. I want, I want, this is important. I think this is important to work into the fabric of our church. Implication number one is that you simply cannot live a healthy spiritual life unconnected from the local church. You can't do it. You cannot do it. It's just to, to say that you're you know, part of the church and a Christian and you don't have a vibrant connection with the church. Uh, there's this old Baptist preacher back in the 1800s. His name was Charles Spurgeon. He's one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. Um, and he said that Christians that live like that are a parallel to a brick that is being kicked down the road and all the while that single brick crying out, I am the church, I am the church, I am the church. You cannot live a healthy, vibrant life disconnected from a local church. It's, it's part, and listen, I know it's a struggle. Getting connected is difficult. It is hard. And I think one of the things that has made it so difficult is we as church leaders have bought into this kind of this consumer driven mentality where we want to make everything okay for you and we want to we just want basically I think one of maybe the greatest disease in the church today is the ego and the insecurity of pastors who will do whatever it takes just to get a whole bunch of people to show up and bend over backwards out of their insecurity to please people not calling them to biblical Christianity, but just to please people. And what happens is is it creates a fragile, consumer-driven population that skips around from church to church, just waiting to find the perfect place that's never there. It is vitally important that in the imperfection of the church that we just find a place and we... We just decide I'm going to get into it and I'm going to do my part for this 
place, but because we have not taught well, because we have made it too easy, we have kind of let people, I'm talking kind of universally here, we've just made it all about us. But remember what we read in Ephesians 1 and 2, it's not about us. He saved you gloriously to make you part of something, to to work good works through you. And so all of us have this responsibility. The eye cannot say, I'm not an ear. The, The foot cannot say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not useful. Everybody. So we should do the hard work of calling people to this self-sacrificial life where it is difficult, but the onus is not just on a few, but on all of us to be connected and to be vital and vibrant and healthy as we together engage the purposes of the church, which is to worship, to nurture one another, and to spread the gospel. And I hope, you know, you just the disconnect between... Jesus' presentation of the gospel and the American church's presentation of the gospel is stunning. I mean, Jesus is, he does these incredible things in John 6, and then at the end of the chapter, he says, okay, now eat my flesh. If you're serious about this, really, let's, let's go. Let's go. And a bunch of people are like, ah, I don't know, man. And a bunch of people walk away. But in, in just, and I, I'm guilty of this too. You just, sometimes you just want people to come because you want to feel more successful. The Son of God after living three years on the earth, preaching the good news of the kingdom, after his death and resurrection and ascension, garnered about 120 people to gather together in an upper room in Acts chapter 2. Snap. I don't know what to say to that. I I mean, I hope we grow. I mean, I'm not saying every church should be 120 people. I'm just saying that, that, that there's... Look, getting connected is hard. It's hard. And uh, we, we've got to... It's a two-way street. Secondly, is that there is no perfect representation of the church on earth. There just isn't. And we need to approach the church with with great humility. Um, There is a movement in pastors in my generation to react to traditional church. And you get these magazines and all this church marketing stuff. And basically the, the gist of the church marketing and kind of advertisement is, hey, the church is horrible, so come to our church because we're doing something new and we're not going to be like everybody else is horrible. Um, listen here, knucklehead. Actually, you've been doing it for about three years and there's been this whole group of people for the past 2,000 years, some of them who've been laying down their life, some of them who may do it a little bit differently than you do, some people who may have organs and stained glass windows, some people who may dress up and do it a little bit more formally, some people who may, whatever. But, but, just, but just close your mouth, preach the gospel, love people, walk humbly, do good, and in humility, love the whole body of Christ, not just the cool part that you're a part of. And so, so we, we need to be very, very humble when we are uh, evaluating other segments of the church. That's why I say it often. We, we are not a reaction to anything here other than God's grace. And we're just trying to be ourselves, right? That's all it is. That's all it is. Look, it's, it's like I've, I've given this analogy before, but, but my wife and I were married December 17th, 1994, and on that day, she walked through these doors at the end of the sanctuary where we were married. And she walked down the aisle, and I thought she was the prettiest thing in the world. But I'm getting in trouble for this every time I tell this story. I've got to find a better way to tell it. But, I mean, let's be honest. In the grand spe- I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, the best-looking dude in the world. And although she's closer to being the best-looking woman in the world than I am being the best-looking man in the world, I mean, hey, hey, we've all got errors, right? But she's walking down the aisle... And at that point, if somebody in the aisle and my big brother was right there, he's my best man, if somebody would have said, <laughs> I can't believe she's wearing that dress. I mean, we would, have, we would have, time out, preacher. We would have gone over the aisle. We would have gone, we'd have started Operation Beatdown because you don't snicker at the bride, right? You don't do that. And, but yet Christians... You know, we just act like the other churches just don't know what they're doing because really what we want is we want a bunch of people to come assuage our ego so that we can be a big deal. That is, that is, it's more demonic than it is Christian. It really is. 
So if there's this edge to us, like we figured it out, we haven't figured anything out other than the gospel. And the, the reason we do things the way we do is because we're just, that's just kind of who we are. And there are parts of who we are that needs to be sanctified. So hopefully 10 years from now, we will not look like we look now because hopefully we will have and I will have matured. There is no perfect church. So we should not be critical of the church. And we should be very gracious and humble. And that doesn't mean we need to go to churches that we think are doing things a little bit wrong or having bad doctrine. But just I think we just, we just need to kind of be humble and gracious and say, look, there are no perfect representations of church. And here, here's another thing before I... I think I've got this point down, okay? You guys got, you guys got what I'm saying? Okay. Two, two, two pitfalls I want you to avoid. Number one, avoid the... Uh, there's two pitfalls I see. There's excuse and there's idol. First is the excuse is, oh, well, I was hurt. I was hurt, you know, 20 years ago, and the preacher did this. Look, we've all been hurt, man. I mean, we've got we to get past that, all right? And don't let one little thing 20 years ago or five years ago or three months ago become kind of the defining moment of your Christian life and then spoil your relationship with the church from there on out. Look, don't, don't, don't blow up your hurt above the greater thing that God's doing. And the second thing is the idol mentality is maybe we've had a church in the past that we really loved and for whatever reason we moved or whatever and now we're here and we're like oh, i will never find another church like that and so you know we just long for i mean i even have conversations with people like we'll go to lunch and like man you know i just i mean they're sitting there talking to the guy who the church that they're going to at that day and they're like yeah it's great but i mean it's just nothing like my old church i'm like oh great i feel good then thanks i mean it's just it's just this idle mentality, like this thing in the past that I will never live up to. I mean, is that going to be your testimony for the rest of your life? Like, I will never find another church. Like, I, you know, just this romantic notion in the past. I mean, avoid those two pitfalls. There's no perfect representation of the church on earth. And thirdly and finally, and I'll stop here and then we'll take communion. The church should be the most messy and yet the most beautiful place on earth. The church should be full of people who are in process. There's got to be a place in the world, and hopefully the church is it, where it is okay to not be okay. But you come together in a redemptive community where, by God's grace, you move towards growth in Christ. Let's pray, and in just a moment we're going to receive communion. Guys, come on back. Lord, as um, as we gather around the table here in a few moments... I pray that you'd help us. And most of all, I, I pray selfishly that you'd help me understand what a church is and the great implications of what you've called us to beyond just our individual salvation. God, over these next few weeks, as we endeavor to understand the church better, I pray that you'd help us get real clear on a few things. Number one, the gospel. And how everything flows out of that gloriously great news. And number two, how you've called us to something more than just heaven, but you've called us to create this representation on earth here as it is in heaven for your glory. And so, God, I repent of times in my life when I've been critical of parts of the church that I wasn't a part of, and even parts, even critical of the church that I was serving at at the time. I I, I repent of that. Lord, I repent of times when really uh, this is more about me than it is about your glory and your grace, and I'm I'm basically being a glory stealer. I pray that you'd, you'd help that continue to die in my life. And I pray, God, that you, as we study the church, that we would, as a little expression of the great universal church that we would in a greater way fall in love with what you're doing in the earth through the church and now as we prepare to receive communion i pray lord that as we take these little pieces of bread and this little cup of juice i pray that you would help us link historically to that first church and acts that would do this that church in corinthians that paul would instruct on how to do this and Help us get outside of 2009 and our small little context and realize that we're part of not just our local church, but we're part of this gloriously huge, unbelievably beautiful 
universal church of all people for all time that have loved you. As we're taking these little pieces of bread and this juice, help us realize that something far bigger is going on than just our personal encouragement. It's like that scripture in Hebrews 12 that says, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw aside everything that that hinders us and let us look unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. God, we realize now that there are there are saints from the Old Testament and saints from the New Testament and the past 2,000 years that are with you that are that are our cloud of witnesses right now. And we're connected to something far bigger than functional, better living. We are connected to the great and glorious gospel that is coming to rule and reign and bring peace. And we're a part of that deal. And that's amazing. And so as we've got individual things we need to iron out with you, God, link it together in our hearts for something with something far bigger, which is the church. And help us realize the great and glorious work of Christ on the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's all stand if we would. Um, hey, Jeremy, if you'd serve on this side over here. Chris Ferguson, if you'd come and serve on this side over here. Our custom here at Crosspoint is for just the outside aisles to come down. Everyone is invited to participate, but it's not mandatory. You don't have to if you don't want to. It's not a, it's not a uh, requirement to be a member of Crosspoint to participate in communion with us. We think that the Bible tells us that you should be a Christian, that you should know Jesus as your Savior, that you should... And the way you become a Christian is you trust in Christ. You turn from self-reliance and sin and you trust in Christ. And then the Bible says that at that moment, when you do that, you become a new creation. And um, if that's what's going on in your heart right now and you're wanting to trust in Christ, I'd encourage you to participate in communion with us. And realize that this little bread represents the broken body of God that was broken for us on a cross. It took upon our sin and, and, and as a result was punished for us. And this little juice represents his blood that is this new covenant of grace that we walk in now. Not a, not a covenant of law, but a covenant of grace. And that's what these little elements mean. And if you um, want to participate in that with us, you're more than welcome to. So from outside aisles, let's come on down. And then after the outside aisles are, are done, we'll do the middle aisle. Scriptures say in First Corinthians chapter 11 the apostle paul is writing about the night before jesus the night he was betrayed the night before he died on the cross for us and he's recounting what we call the last supper and in that meal jesus takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it and he tears it and before he passes it out he gave thanks for it and then he said to his disciples this is my body which is broken for you as often as you eat of it do so in remembrance of me And what he's telling his disciples to remember there is he's foreshadowing what would happen the next night. He's saying that I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be the sacrifice for you. All of your sin will be placed upon my shoulders and the penalty that should have been yours will be be borne by me. And I will die in your place. I will suffer the punishment that should have been yours. And he's saying now when you gather thousands of years even from this point he says remember that remember remember the cross remember that we were once without hope but now we have hope those of us who have trusted in Christ because of the broken body of God that was a substitute for us Lord as we take this little piece of bread with its jagged edges and its torn pieces let it be a reminder of the broken body of God himself Jesus who became our sacrifice who became our substitute in our place to bear our penalty for us help us not to gloss over our own sin but help us to realize that even some of the things that we would classify as petty are acts of treason and rebellion against the Creator. And so, God, we, we're in awe of how you have treated us. You've treated us with mercy, and you've treated yourself with wrath for our sake. And so, God, we take this bread now remembering that in Jesus' name.
take the bread together. The Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11 and he says, about the night that they were gathered there with the disciples with Jesus, he says that Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new cup, the new covenant of my blood, which is for you. And so this cup, this little cup of juice represents more than just a cup of juice or wine. It represents this new way of grace that God has of dealing with those that would trust in him. We are no longer under this curse of the sin and law, but we are now under grace. And now we can come up from this table realizing that we have not just been called not guilty in the cross, but we have been made innocent. We're not just forgiven, but we are made righteous in Christ. Now because of this Spirit of God living in me in this new way that God has of dealing with me, I can... I can be a better husband. I can do the life that God has called me to do in, in my struggle and in my strain and in my joy because, because now I have His presence within me in a new way that God deals with me. And that's what this cup represents. There is hope for the struggling Christian. There is hope for the frustrated person because of a new covenant of grace that not only forgives our past, but empowers us now to live for Christ. So God, as we take this cup, help us realize that, as Titus 2 says, that the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching them to say no to unrighteousness and worldliness. And by this new way that you have of dealing with men, that we now live in grace that doesn't just forgive us, but it empowers us to live a new life in you, to walk the beautifully messy path of sanctification and growth in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. Now as we take this cup, help us examine our lives honestly where they are in light of that. And by your Holy Spirit, point out the things in us that need to be empowered, covered and empowered by your grace so that we would walk in newness. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take the cup. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Well, as we talked about, one of the first purposes of the church is simply to worship God. And so we're going to spend a few moments now just responding to God in singing. If you need prayer, a few of us will be down here to pray with you. If you want to pray privately, there's some little kneeling benches for you to pray at. But let's take a few moments, um, and then I'll be up in just a little while to dismiss us. But let's sing together.